Let me invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of 1 Kings, chapter 19. 1 Kings, chapter 19. If you're visiting or if you've been a little clueless, no, we have not been going through the first 18 chapters of 1 Kings. Just dropping in here for one chapter, okay? 1 Kings 19, verses 1 through 18. Before we hear God's word read, let us go again to him humbly in prayer, asking for his help. Our God, would you please cause us to see your tender and faithful heart through this text. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 through 18. Hear now the word of God. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as a life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones. And a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. 
Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Perhaps you have heard it said that when the small fall, the small falls small, and when the big fall, the big fall big. Or perhaps not. I think I just made it up. That is to indicate that we have a difference of the effect of falls. It's one thing for an ant to fall, though I've not seen one. It's quite another for a cow to fall. Bigger effects. Here we have in our text this morning an example of someone who has fallen big time. Someone who was a pretty big figure in redemptive history. In fact, so big that he would eventually be one of those at the Mount of Transfiguration. We have Elijah, who was quite the prophet. Moses is the greatest of Old Testament figures when it comes to the law. And Elijah, the greatest when it comes to the prophetic ministry. And here we have this great prophet who falls greatly. We have someone whose ministry was as monumental as that of Moses. We have him fall for a a short period of time. A man who was jealous for God, now despondent and broken. Charles Spurgeon, after dubbing Elijah the prophet of fire, said that even he, Elijah, had his flaws as the sun has its spots. Strong man though he was, he was sometimes obliged to faint, even as the sun sometimes suffers in eclipse. In this episode of Elijah's life, we are reminded of our own humanity. We are reminded of God's mysterious ways. And we are reminded of the Lord's heart of grace to his people. God's tender heart is extended to the broken heart. If you know our passage, and many of the women studied 1 Kings and 2 Kings about a year ago, might be familiar with it, you likely know what happened before 1 Kings 19. There was a showdown on Mount Carmel between the Lord and Baal, the supposed god of rain. You'll recall that Elijah was mocking the 450 prophets of Baal. Remember him saying something like, go ahead and call upon your God. Maybe he's on a journey. Maybe he's in the bathroom. Maybe he's asleep. You got to wake him up. Go ahead. Keep trying. I'll, I'll keep waiting. And on and on and on. That was a prophetic mockery. His personhood exuded complete confidence in the Lord. He knew that he was a prophet of the Lord. He knew that when the Lord spoke, That word is far superior to the words of these false prophets. His prophethood was vindicated as he witnessed the Lord work mightily, consuming that burnt offering, consuming the wood, the stones, the dust, licking up all the water in the trench. God showed up. He made it crystal clear that Baal was no God, that the Lord is the Lord of all, that there is only one God, There's only one rock, our Redeemer, Yahweh. 
As the youth say, Elijah was a boss. Actually, I'm not sure if the youth still say that. I asked some of, our, some of my, uh, the youth what would be the equivalent today, and they didn't know what to say. Goat, I guess, greatest of all time, I don't know. But he was in complete control. Says, in, essentially, in the, in the previous chapters, take him away. Kill them all. Take away these prophets. Can you imagine being Elijah? What it must have felt like. The heart racing, the adrenaline pumping. He's filled with joy that the Lord is his, that he is speaking on behalf of the Lord. And he is thankful for this vindication that the Lord did show up. And as gruesome as it was, what must it have been like to slaughter 450 false prophets? Clearly, again, indicating that the Lord speaks through Elijah and not through these men. And what does Ahab do? Ahab, King Ahab of Israel, he runs and he tells Jezebel, his wife, what had happened. He complains to her. She is undaunted, isn't she? So what? Jezebel, the best Baalite, is devoted to her rainless rain god. And she is livid. And she says, through a messenger to Elijah, may God do to me, if, uh, if I don't do to you, what you did to these prophets. And we have about a day. May I be struck down if I don't strike you down because you struck down all my prophets. And that's an oath that she doesn't really uh, carry through with. In fact, her blood is is licked up by dogs in uh, coming chapters. She's upset. She's angry. But this word from Jezebel has a significant effect upon Elijah. And we see a change in Elijah in verse 3. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. He's afraid. He runs for his life. He runs about 100 miles away to Beersheba, which is going to take him a number of days, perhaps a week and a half or so. And remember, Jezebel had already killed some prophets. She is not bluffing. She will make good on this threat if she gets her hands on the man. And Elijah seems to be under the impression that Jezebel was going to submit to Yahweh, outlaw Baalism after the mighty display of the Lord on Mount Carmel. Either that, or he was thinking that Ahab and Jezebel would be out of the regal picture that the threat would be eliminated. But neither situation happens. Not for this woman who has dug her high-inch heels into the rain-filled ground. She's ready to, to do battle. She knows that it wasn't Baal who eventually brought down the rain. But her heart has not been changed. She will not budge. Her heart is hardened. And as And as it is hardened, she stores up more wrath for her for the day of judgment. This is a hard truth. To be a person, to be a people, a nation that sees the mighty works of God 
and then still rejects God. So many times, an unbeliever is going to say, well, if God would just show me, if God would do this miracle, then I would believe. And the testimony of Scripture is, no, you will not, unless your heart has been changed. All the mighty works can be displayed before you. If your heart's not changed, you will remain hardened. In fact, and you reject that, you will continue to, to add uh, more judgment upon yourself. Just think about the whole Lazarus account in John 11. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Not everyone believed in Jesus as the resurrection and the life. Remember what some of them tried to do. They tried to kill the evidence. They tried to kill Lazarus. After they saw him walking around again a few days later, let's get rid of this man. Let's get rid of Jesus. It makes the heart marvel, doesn't it? The hardened heart of the wicked ought to make the spirit of the righteous shudder, tremble, and even say, that is who I once was. As Ephesians 2 says, as a a son of disobedience, my heart was at enmity with God and rejected God until it was changed. Following Elijah's journey, we see him fleeing to Beersheba. Then he leaves behind his servant, only to take off again and into the wilderness. By dismissing his servant, we wonder, is Elijah right now saying that he's given up on the ministry? Given up on the one who was is, who is there to fitted for aiding him in his ministry? Maybe that's what Elijah is doing. And under a broom tree, we see a gloomy picture in verse 4. It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. He says to the Lord, I can't go on, Lord. Kill me now. I want your name to be high and lifted up, but Israel will not turn from her wicked ways. What you did at Mount Carmel didn't convert Jezebel. It didn't eliminate the threat. She's not gone. And now she is madder than ever, and she wants to end my life like she had done other prophets before, just take me out now. One who was so high has been brought low. It is beautifully ironic, isn't it, that the one who would never die prays that he would die. There are two men in the Old Testament who never physically died. And Elijah is the second one. Read Genesis for the first one. But the Lord here is is gracious, ever gracious to his weak servants. And he gives us more than we ask for and could imagine. In fact, he says no to this request. No, Elijah, you will not die. And we'll see in a little bit that he even gives Elijah a revival of spirit, and a renewed call to keep going as long as the Lord and his providence will have him on earth. Now listen to what Elijah says in verse 10. 
I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So he says this after he travels another 250 miles to Mount Horeb. He had traveled for 40 days and 40 nights. He's not whining. He's not throwing a pity party here. He is the only visibly open prophet at this time. And he's done for. He wants out. He sees no end to Baalism in sight. He wants the meaning of his name. Yahweh is my Lord. He wants that meaning to be said by everyone. And he is not getting what he wants. It was not to be just yet. And at this point, we read the story, we might be tempted to say, are you kidding me, Elijah? You did just read what you did the previous chapter, right? You, know, you do know what you just did. You do know how the Lord had used you. You do know how the Lord had even fed you earlier. Even when there was a drought, he kept you alive. You saw it. Birds came down and fed you. We can't say that to him. Though we might be tempted to. But we tend to have the attitude towards these biblical characters, don't we? Think about the the first generation of Israelites. And we say... The Red Sea was parted for you. Manna from heaven. Water from a rock. You do know those things don't actually happen a lot of times, right? They're pretty rare. They're miraculous. And you still grumble. You still complain. You still prefer the leeks and the onions of Egypt. You prefer the false gods of Egypt. We consider the lives of Those Israelites during the period of Judges spent, I think it was 28 sermons on Judges. And we see the Judges themselves, we see the men and women in that period, and we are tempted to say, you had men to help you. You saw God's great works. I mean, you beheld Samson. He was a mighty man, only because of God. And you still still struggle to believe? Or we consider the lives of the disciples, and we say, well, now if I were one of the twelve, if I saw Jesus walking on water, literally before my eyes, I would always believe, and I would never have any kind of doubt. And even if he was raised from the dead, I wouldn't have any doubt. And yet in Matthew 28, Jesus is raised from the dead, and it says that some were still doubting. The risen Lord is before them, and some are still doubting. We say, come on, Peter. Come on, Levi. Come on, disciples. And we do that. We should say, come on, man, to the self. This is not an Elijah-only problem. This is not a Peter-only problem, a wilderness generation-only problem. This is a human fallen problem. This is a problem for you and for me. 
Remember other examples in the Bible of this weakness. King David, 2 Samuel 10, he wins in against all odds war with the Syrians and the Ammonites. And there's peace in the land. He vindicates his people who had been humiliated. He subjects the Syrians to his rule. David comes off a huge victory, militarily speaking, only to fall morally with his adultery with Bathsheba and murder of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. The very next chapter. You say, David, 2 Samuel 11, what happened to you from 2 Samuel chapter 10? Two different, two different guys. How'd you fall? Or you consider Peter's boldness. You imagine the boldness to cut off a guy's ear, though he's probably not trying for the, the ear. Cut, he cuts off Malchus's ear. I'm going to defend Christ with my life, even as he had professed to Jesus himself. I won't deny you. Here in the presence of hundreds of Romans and Jews, only to deny Christ three times when a little insignificant no-name servant girl asks him about his allegiance. Do you know Jesus? No. Are you sure? Yeah, I'm sw- I swear on it. I doubly swear. I'll even put a, myself under a curse if I know this man. This is a problem with sinful humanity. We must regularly behold our brokenness, our own frailty, our weakness. I might have shared this with some of you, maybe in a past sermon, I don't remember, but you'll get it again. Years ago, when I was leading a team to Salt Lake City, ministering to the uh, Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, we would take a trip, and we would go first to their worship service, their their ward, um, their sacrament service, and we would hear all the various testimonies. We would interact with the, the missionaries there, and there was one Sunday called Testimony Sunday. It was the first Sunday of the month, and that was when anyone could come and speak to the whole crowd. And there was no fencing of the pulpit, if you will, and I said to the youth, if, uh, if there's no fencing of this pulpit, I'm going to go up there, and I'm going to say something. And I was very respectful, but I had facial hair, which meant that I was clearly not an LDS. And I went up there. I also wasn't wearing white. That was another indicator. And I start talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ and how I know in my heart that Joseph Smith Jr. is not a prophet, which is the thing that you say, you say that he is a prophet at the very end of, your, of all of your testimony if you're a Mormon. That's how, you conclude your, uh, that's how you conclude your testimony. And I know that Joseph Smith is a prophet. And I said, and I know that Joseph Smith Jr. is not a prophet and that this word of God, these 66 books, are the only word of God. This is the testimony. that You need to believe this. And... I don't know, they let me talk for about five minutes, and then I left, went out, and I felt pretty, I was high, and like, yeah, okay, I was bold for Jesus, and I was a little nervous, obviously, because who knows, are they going to start kicking all of us out? It's okay. So I'm out in the foyer, and here comes this little sweet girl in a wheelchair just rolling up to me. She might be 17, 18 years old, I don't know. And she starts asking me questions about Jesus. She starts talking with me about, um, about how she knows that the Book of Mormon is, is the truth. And on and on and on. And I got to tell you guys, I buckled. I buckled. I was not 
bold and gentle with this young lady. And I did not, um, with the gospel, confront her in her sin and show her the way of Jesus, the real Jesus. And that's a, a regret that I have. And as we f- flew back to Phoenix, I could not stop crying on the airplane. Like, how did I miss that up? As a reminder to me that you can be bold one moment and you can fall big time in another when you least expect it. We must behold our brokenness. How often have we, dear ones, gone to church, worshiped the Lord, sung praises to our God, heard and believed his word of grace to us? How often have we partaken of the Lord's Supper only to yell at our kids that afternoon, only to write up that nasty email and click send, only to drink in excess, only to allow our eyes to behold unseemly images. How often is that the case for us? Humility, beloved, humility is in order as we behold our own humanity, our frailty, our weaknesses before God And man, surely these weaknesses should be used to drive us to the one who sympathized with us in our weaknesses, to Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, but who takes our weaknesses to the Father, intercedes for us even now. Yes, praise God. Sometimes we fall because of incomplete knowledge or lack of trust. Look at verses 9 and 10, or at least verse 9 again. There he came to a cave and lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And that's when Elijah says that I've been very jealous for you, O God. We know the saying, God works in mysterious ways. Ever cerebral, we often lose sight of the fact that, that God works in ways that are not our own ways. Elijah, as a fallen human, is no exception. Because Elijah loses sight of the reality that God works in different and unique ways according to God's will for any given situation, Elijah's expectations are not met. And so he is confused and he is depressed. After the Lord asks Elijah the first time what Elijah is doing there, Elijah then addresses his concerns, as we've read. And notice how God interacts with Elijah at Mount Horeb, the Mount of God. Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And so there was this great and strong wind. There was this earthquake. There was this fire. Can you imagine being on that mount among such a great wind, great earthquake, great trembling of the the mountain and fire? But the Lord wasn't in any of those occurrences. That's not to say he didn't bring them about. Obviously, he did. But he has chosen not to reveal himself through those occurrences before Elijah. And this takes us aback. Because of the mighty display just a chapter before, where you have God going big in that showdown with the prophets of Baal. But he wasn't in them here. The voice was the indication that God was there. His word indicated his presence. God is showing us that he can go big or he can go small. He can send fire down and consume everything in sight, 
or he can reveal his presence by just a soft word, a low whisper. And so to Elijah, God unexpectedly does a 180 here. Elijah is being reminded, and we are being reminded, to recognize the Lord by the Lord's voice, where he has spoken. Beloved, hear the Lord's voice. Are we training our ears to hear God's word? Or are our eyes of flesh too distracted by the events of the world? Our dispensational brothers and sisters try to find God in the newspapers, trying to connect all the dots based on the recent happenings recorded in the newspapers. And yes, the Lord is intimately involved in all the affairs of all of his creation. As the newspapers record accurately the events, yes, the Lord is working all things out. But the Lord's sure word is not what is trending on social media. You will not find it in all those YouTube influencers unless they're just reading the Bible to you. I imagine those would be rare. Rosario Butterfield, in her book, Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age, says, Your witness for Christ requires ultimately that you know Christ better than you know the world. And this means that you are in the Bible more than you are on the Internet. She's not trying to guilt trip us into reading the Bible. She's not trying to uh, help us uh, manage our time as, as a you know, I have five minutes on the internet, and so I should have, you know, ten minutes in the Bible. But she is causing us to reflect on what we are taking in, what we are being influenced by, what are we allowing to dwell richly in our hearts. Is it the stuff of the internet? Is it the stuff of social media, the stuff of TikTok, of YouTube, of Spotify, or whatever? Or are we imbibing, are we allowing to dwell richly in us the word of God? The words of eternal life. We must hear the Lord's voice here in the Bible. Now, many of us, if not all of us, are right now confused and wondering the meaning of Presbyterian's decision from last week of August. And as I mentioned last week, I likewise am wondering. I'm in the same boat as you all. But we ask, what does all this mean? Where is this church headed? What will happen? Those are great questions. And the answer right now is, well, let's wait and find out as God sovereignly unfolds his providence before our eyes. Well, what do we do in the meantime? The same thing we've been trying to do this whole time, which is to hear the Lord's voice and conform our lives to his word to listen to what he calls us to do in his word. What is God's will for you and me right now? Scripture is very clear. Your sanctification, my sanctification. Paul says it over and over again in his letters to the Thessalonians. This is God's will for you, your sanctification, your holiness, your growth in godliness, your submission to the word of God. You're following your Savior. That is his will for you, for me, for every Christian. For every child of God. 
Does the Bible say anything about how to lead rightly? Yes. And your elders and your presbytery do well then to listen to the word of God as it speaks to those matters. Does the Bible say anything about prayer? Yes. You heard a message last week on the importance, the urgency, the efficacy of prayer. So we must continue to be praying. Does the Lord's word say anything about relational conflicts and how to handle them? Yes, over and over and over. Even as some Sunday school teachers taught this morning as I stepped into class about God's forgiveness, how he doesn't hold it over our heads, our sins against us. Let us likewise have compassion on others. What is God's secret will in all of this? Let us not worry our little heads about that, but rather focus on his revealed word for us. And that wasn't meant to be demeaning when I said our little heads. It was meant to put in perspective that we are finite, that our wisdom sometimes is really foolishness, and that God is infinite. He is wise. We must submit to his perfect wisdom revealed in his word. Surely our incomplete knowledge then should be used to drive us to Christ, who is the word of God. It is this God who has spoken, who shows us again and again how tender, how long-suffering, how faithful he is, both to his people and his own word and covenant. We see a beautiful picture of our covenant-keeping God, our gracious God, in verses 5 through 8. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. The Lord here is providing for Elijah, an angel, to nourish him by preparing him for the long journey ahead. A 40-day journey. This is similar to what God had done in the previous chapters, nourishing Elijah at Kerith and Zarephath. Now God provides for his broken servant a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. This must have been truly refreshing for Elijah in his body, for his soul. Not only does God provide for Elijah's physical needs, but he also shows his tenderness with this question, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? This is not a harsh rebuke. It's not, what are you doing here, Elijah? Get back over there. Get back in the fight. No, it's, what are you doing here, Speak to your God. Speak to the one who has compassion on you. Speak to the one who loves you. Speak to the one who has called you his prophet. Tell me, why are you here? Speak. Pray. Why Horeb? The location is of monumental significance. Pun intended. A mountain. Okay, this is of mountainous significance. Elijah has a reason for going to Horeb. 
Because you recall, Horeb also is another word for saying Sinai. Mount Horeb and Mount Sinai, they're the same. This is the place where the Lord had established the covenant with Moses. And here is Elijah, the covenant enforcer, calling the people of God to repentance, to faith in the Lord. But Elijah, seeing the unrepentant hearts of Israel, goes to Mount Sinai to bring a formal case against Israel. At Mount Horeb, Moses interceded for Israel. Here, Elijah is now prosecuting Israel. And in this accusation, Elijah shows himself to be nearsighted. The Lord will be gracious to fallen Israel as he was gracious to errant Elijah. The Lord is gracious to him by reminding him of his, the Lord's faithfulness. The Lord will keep his covenant. He will be faithful to his word. He will, yes, discipline his people because of the love that he has for them. For a true father chastises his sons. There will be death for the disobedient. There will be death for those who are unrepentant, for those who are hard-hearted. But there will also be preservation. God will preserve his people, and he will preserve his word through the prophets. Elijah is not the last prophet. The Lord says he will save them. He tells Elijah that all is not lost, even though it might seem so. Verse 18, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So there are 7,000 Israelites who don't love Baal. That's a good number. They love the Lord. There was always a remnant. God has always preserved a remnant. And the trajectory of the Bible says that it's not just only a remnant, but more than a remnant that will be preserved as he unfolds his history. But that's another sermon for another day. And God wants Elijah right now to be the prophet of that remnant. They still need to hear the word of God. Elijah, it's not time to go. And with this assurance, he tells Elijah that Elijah still has some work to do, and God even graciously restores Elijah's confidence in him. As you carry on in the narrative, you see that Elijah will soon speak against Ahab in chapter 21 for his conspiracy and robbery of Naboth's vineyard, something that some of the kids learned today and last week. I'm sure they remember it. Elijah spoke confidently in that episode. As God does with Elijah, so he will do with Israel. You just got to give him time. It is his, after all. Let us not run ahead of God. But here, see, the Lord's tender and faithful heart is extended to you. Surely, beloved, our lack of trust should drive us to the faithful one, to the Christ. God is tender towards us because he is faithful to his covenant with Christ and with all those who are in Christ. God's faithfulness to his covenant means from time to time disciplining us when we sin. Yes. But it also means keeping, preserving all those who are sealed by the Holy Spirit, who are united to Christ 
by the shed blood of Christ. We are a broken people. We are often in despair. And only God can pick us up, can cleanse us, can restore us. He revives us with new morning mercies and daily spirit-wrought grace. And he invites us to give him all of our griefs, our burdens, our weaknesses, our foibles, our troubles, our failings, our sins. And we are told that he will not break a bruised reed. And he sent his son to be our sympathetic high priest. He sent his son to be our final prophet. He sent his son to be our gracious and loving king, to call us to himself and to find rest in him. Rather than run away from our Yahweh, let us run toward him, finding refuge in the only one in whom all the promises are yes and amen in Christ, for he is ever faithful and ever good. Let's pray. Our faithful God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in this word you have spoken, you have spoken words of truth, truth that can transform lives, truth that can change hearts, that can open eyes, that will sanctify us from one degree of glory to another. And we pray, Lord, for that work to be in us, to continue to work mightily by the ministry of the Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.